Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Jackie Leonard and in the early hours of Monday the 13th of April, these are our main stories. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has paid tribute to the health workers he said saved his life after a week in hospital with coronavirus. They're Jenny from New Zealand and Luis from Portugal for every second of the night. They were watching and making the interventions I needed. Italy, the European country which has suffered the most deaths, has recorded its lowest daily total in more than three weeks. And oil-producing countries have agreed a huge cut in output in the hope of ending a slump in prices, which has been worsened by the coronavirus pandemic. The number of coronavirus deaths in UK hospitals has now risen above 10,000. That figure was announced on the day that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson said he would have died from COVID-19 if it hadn't been for the care he received at the London hospital from which he was discharged on Sunday. In a message of thanks to the doctors and nurses who had treated him, Mr Johnson said it could have gone either way. He's now convalescing at his official country residence, Chequers. Here's our political correspondent, Ben Wright. The Prime Minister's hospitalisation for coronavirus underscored the severity of the crisis facing his government and the country. But a week after being admitted to St Thomas's, Boris Johnson returned to Chequers. In a video message posted by Number 10, a clearly relieved and grateful Mr Johnson praised the care he'd received. He said there was no question the NHS had saved his life. Mr Johnson name-checked many of the doctors and nurses who had looked after him and singled out two in particular... They're Jenny from New Zealand, in the Cargill on the South Island to be exact, and Luis from Portugal near Porto. And the reason in the end my body did start to get enough oxygen was because for every second of the night they were watching and making the interventions I needed. Looking weary but wearing a suit and tie, Boris Johnson said he had seen the pressure the NHS was under and the courage of its staff. The Prime Minister spent three days in intensive care receiving oxygen and today his pregnant girlfriend Carrie Simons tweeted there were very dark times last week and said her heart went out to everyone worried sick about their loved ones. Boris Johnson thanked the country for following the lockdown rules and said progress was being made in the battle against coronavirus. We will win because our NHS is the beating heart of this country. It is the best of this country It is unconquerable. It is powered by love. So, thank you from me. Boris Johnson will now continue his convalescence and it may be weeks before the Prime Minister is fully back to work. That was Ben Wright. A leading scientist advising the British government on the pandemic has warned it's still unclear whether people can get the virus more than once. Jeremy Farrer from the health and science research charity Wellcome Trust says it's inevitable the disease will return in a second and even third wave. And he says understanding whether people develop immunity is vital. The reports from Korea, I think there's been almost 100 reports now of people that have been infected. They seem to have recovered and then at a later date, they became infected again. It is critical to understand whether those are one viral infection that has persisted in one individual for a considerable time and now has reactivated, 
or whether they've been infected with a second virus. Either way, it suggests that perhaps immunity in some people is not complete, and that has major ramifications for the ability to make a vaccine and also for the community to be protected against future waves. Dr Farah also warned that the UK could emerge as the worst affected country in Europe. Our science editor, David Shookman, has this assessment. The comment from Jeremy Farah that the UK may end up with the worst death toll in Europe was not categoric. It's his judgment that that scenario was possible, based on different forecasts of the pandemic. And comparisons with other countries are anyway difficult, because governments reacted in different ways at different times, and their systems for counting deaths vary. In any event, the message from scientists tracking the pandemic is that it's still early days, and that even in countries like Germany, praised for their handling of the outbreak, everything now depends on the response of the public. David Shookman. So as we mentioned earlier, the number of coronavirus deaths in UK hospitals has now risen above 10,000. Lise Doucette spoke to Dr Martin McKee, Professor of European Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So could this outcome have been prevented? These are people who have been tested and who died in hospital. And the worrying problem is that almost certainly the figure is somewhat higher than that. I've just been looking at a paper with some international data showing that in other countries about a third of the total deaths are in care homes. And we know in New York that a significant number have been people dying at home. So 10,000 is certainly the minimum number. Could it have been different? Well, we have an interesting comparison with the Republic of Ireland, which uh, started to get cases around the same time. And it introduced the restrictions about a week earlier. And that has made quite a difference. Uh, So it's been running at about half the death toll per head of population half the number of cases. So just getting it a little bit earlier makes all the difference. And of course, there's a difference in in populations and densities of cities, but even allowing for that, are you saying that if the authorities in, um, in England had acted more quickly, that the number would be lower? Well, that's simply a mathematical function that we know that if they had done so from that, we would expect it to be much lower. And of course, we now see the empirical evidence. We have the evidence that the rate is continuing to climb in the United Kingdom in a way that we're now seeing a turnaround in deaths in Spain and and Italy, for example. But I think the general view is that there was a uh, failure to act on time in the United Kingdom for a number of reasons, also probably a uh, pursuit of uh, policy that other countries did not uh, take. And for many weeks now, people have been looking at the graphs, looking at what happens in Italy and forecasting that perhaps Britain was following not too far behind. But now mm-hmm. there are predictions that the UK could be the worst affected in Europe. When you look at these graphs, are you also coming to this view? Well, we're now at over 10,000 and we don't appear to have reached the peak, or at least we don't know if we've reached the peak. And this is the, the real problem with the data, because when the uh, we have the daily press conference and they announce the number of deaths reported in the last 24 hours, some of them have actually died a week or more earlier. And uh, I think there is a real challenge here in the United Kingdom getting its data together in a way that other countries have managed to do. Dr Martin McKee from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Italy and France have recorded an improvement in their numbers of daily coronavirus deaths. Italy has registered its lowest tally for more than three weeks, 431. Our Europe regional editor Mike Sanders has more details. 
The coronavirus pandemic has proved deadlier in Italy than anywhere else in Europe. The next set of figures will inevitably push the country over the threshold of 20,000 deaths, joining the United States. But fatalities are running at half the level they were two weeks ago, validating official assertions that it has passed the peak. In France, there was a slight drop in mortality, but not enough to keep the total below 14,000 deaths. Spain, which has the most infections in Europe, suffered a slight upward blip, just as Madrid is encouraging non-essential staff to go back to work this week. That was Mike Sanders. Meanwhile, the French government has called for an army of workers to help in the fields in the weeks ahead to meet manpower shortages in farming caused by the coronavirus. Around a third of France's one million seasonal farm workers come from abroad, mainly eastern and southern Europe, as well as North Africa. But because of the travel ban, there are fears crops may go unpicked. Hugh Schofield reports from central France. All of France is under lockdown. That means not just the cities, but also here in the countryside, in small towns and villages, it's the same empty quiet. But for farmers, life goes on. Crops can't wait to be sown or planted or picked. The nation still has to be fed. The question is, in the time of coronavirus, who's going to do all that work? Some growers have seen business boom since the arrival of the epidemic. Here in the town of Montargis, Guillaume Sompe runs a nursery supplying the local area with organic tomatoes, strawberries and herbs. Now he's suddenly found scores of new customers wanting produce delivered to their doors during the quarantine. More staff are needed badly. We've the good fortune to have a website and as a result our online sales have shot up. Demand is 40% more than usual and that means a lot of extra work on the sales side which means we need to take on people on the production side. But workers today are hard to find. Because of the virus, the seasonal workers from abroad who normally help with the harvests, like the asparagus harvest, which is right now getting underway, they're not coming. And so the French government's teamed up with a farming website called WYSIFARM to launch an appeal. People from the towns temporarily out of work are urged to come to the fields to help. Already 200,000 have signed up and are waiting to be matched with employers. Jean-Baptiste Vervy is the director of WYSIFARM. Quite honestly, if no one comes to work in the farms, then in the weeks ahead, we'll be facing real supply problems for certain produce. It's already what's happened in Italy, which is a few weeks ahead of us. There won't be zero production, but definitely shortages. One man who's answered the call is Maxime Beurre, a computer worker in Alsace. He was put in touch with a grower of hops, who needs labour because of the absence of his regular migrant staff from Eastern Europe. I don't see myself as a soldier more as someone who really wants to help in this terribly difficult time. I think farming is a noble profession, so if there's a lack of manpower, I want to play my part. Spring has come to France now and the growing season is underway. Very soon the need for farm labour will be intense. If the migrant workers continue to stay away, France may have no other option but its army of city pickers. Hugh Schofield reporting from France.
Still to come in this podcast. And so, for the first time in motoring history, the British Grand Prix has been won by an Englishman. And who more richly deserving than Sterling Moss? One of the greats of motor racing, Sir Sterling Moss, has died at the age of 90. Oil exporting nations have agreed to cut production by almost 10 million barrels a day following last minute talks that were held online. It's a record cut, representing one tenth of global supplies. But there's been strong disagreement, mainly between Russia and Saudi Arabia, as our economics correspondent, Andrew Walker, explains. Oil producers are especially exposed to the economic consequences of the response to the new coronavirus. Most refined oil is used as transport fuel and demand for it has collapsed. Previous attempts by the group made up of OPEC countries, Russia and others, failed to agree to reduce production, most recently because Mexico was unwilling to cut as deeply as the others wanted. But President Trump, the leader of a country not directly involved in these talks, intervened and, according to the Mexican president, offered to help with United States production cuts. U.S. intentions are unclear, although the country's industry has already reduced production because of the fall in prices. Andrew Walker. The Microsoft founder Bill Gates has spent years investing in efforts to rid the world of diseases like malaria and Ebola. Now he's turning his attention to coronavirus. In an interview with the BBC, Mr Gates has been speaking about the race to get a vaccine and why global cooperation is key to fighting the pandemic. Coronavirus is going through waves. The first wave was very much China. And now there's a wave that almost all of the rich countries are experiencing very challenging epidemics. Hopefully by early summer, if the right type of isolation policies and testing policies have been implemented, a lot of the countries will be beyond the peak and looking at opening back up. Sadly, the developing countries who as yet don't have huge number of cases are likely to have the worst of it because their ability to isolate the capacity of their health system is far less than in the rich countries. And so the global cooperation is to help those countries and then to supercharge the therapeutics and vaccine work, which will involve expertise from all over the globe. You'll be aware a lot of people are asking what is a very simple and straightforward question, which is, when will there be a vaccine? What do, how do you see that? Well, it's a perfect question because we want to get back to the life we had before coronavirus. And, you know, people are seeing the, the economic destruction, the psychological stress. People like myself and Tony Fauci are saying 18 months. If everything went perfectly, we could do slightly better than that. But there will be a trade-off. We'll have less safety testing than we typically would have. And so governments will have to decide, do they indemnify the companies and really say, let's, let's go out with this when it's, we just don't have the time to do what we normally do. So 18 months is about what we'd expect. We're doing everything we can. We'll write checks for those factories faster than governments can, and they'll come along. It definitely shouldn't be money limited. It should be, you know, all the best constructs, full speed ahead, science limited. Do you think things will go back to normal, or is that all changed? Once you have a safe and effective vaccine and get that out to almost all of the people on the planet and build the preparatory systems for the next pandemic so you can nip it in the bud, 
we will go back to normal and economies will recover. But we have multiple stages to go through uh, until we have that. You know, how much can we open up? How do we help the developing countries? But the economy eventually will go back to where it was and innovation will help us not be at such a risk in the years after that. Bill Gates speaking to my colleague Charlie State. New York State has seen its lowest daily increase in the number of hospital patients since the authorities started tracking the data nearly four weeks ago. Peter Bowes reports. A flattening of the numbers with fewer people falling ill because of the coronavirus was, according to the New York governor, good news. But Andrew Cuomo stressed that the truly tragic news was that a further 758 people had died in the state. You're not seeing a great decline in the numbers, but you're seeing a flattening. And you're also seeing a recurrence of the terrible news, which is the number of lives lost, which is 758. Somebody asked the question once, can you ever get numb to these, seeing these numbers? Unfortunately, no. He added that the U.S. needed to ramp up its testing of people before the country could reopen. His comments were echoed by Dr Anthony Fauci, a senior member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, who said antibody tests were needed to identify those people who'd had the disease before they could safely return to work. Peter Bowes. St Peter's Square in Rome, usually packed with tens of thousands on Easter Sunday, lay empty yesterday, while inside the Basilica, Pope Francis celebrated Mass with very few attendants. His blessing to the city and the world was instead delivered via television, radio or the internet. Our religious affairs correspondent Martin Bashir has this report. In Rome, Pope Francis delivered his annual message in starkly different circumstances to those normally associated with the joy of Easter Sunday. No flowers around the basilica, no pilgrims in St Peter's Square. And he referred to the rebuilding of Europe after the Second World War as a way to honour the faith and fight back against the coronavirus. This is not a time for self-centredness, because the challenge we are facing is shared by all without distinguishing between persons. After the Second World War, this beloved continent was able to rise again, thanks to a concrete spirit of solidarity that enabled it to overcome the rivalries of the past. It is more urgent than ever, especially in the present circumstances, that these rivalries do not regain force. Pope Francis said that on this Easter Sunday, the Christian faith represented a different kind of contagion to the pandemic that has swept around the world. It is the contagion of hope. Christ, my hope, is risen. This is no magic formula that makes problems vanish. No. Instead, it is the victory of love over the root of evil. A victory that does not bypass suffering and death, but passes through them. With the vast majority of churches closed, Christians have marked Easter in isolation. But with a range of live streaming and online services, 
it has still been possible to celebrate Christ's resurrection with music, prayers, and a range of liturgies. And in the Philippines, which cancelled all services, a church in the north of Manila found a way of gathering its congregation together. A priest invited parishioners to email him a recent image of themselves. These were then printed out and placed in the pews, creating a fellowship of photographs to celebrate Easter. That was Martin Bashir. And on to one other story. One of the greats of motor racing, Sir Sterling Moss, has died after a long illness. He was 90. Sterling Moss won 16 Grand Prix and his passion for racing made him one of the most admired sporting heroes of his generation. Our sports correspondent, Joe Wilson, looks back at his career. And so, for the first time in motoring history, the British Grand Prix has been won by an Englishman. And who more richly deserving than Sterling Moss? So Sterling Moss forged his career on this principle. Any driver who's worth the name tried to win every race. His deeds matched his words. 375 races finished, 212 won. Whatever the car, he raced for adventure and sportsmanship. In 1958, Sterling Moss argued for Mike Hawthorne not to be disqualified from the Portuguese Grand Prix. Hawthorne was reinstated to second place and ultimately beat Moss to the world title by a single point. In an era when many drivers were killed, an accident at Goodwood in Sussex in 1962 ended his professional career. Moss spent a month in a coma, but Sir Sterling never lost his love of motor racing and was still driving at Goodwood at the age of 80. Four times he was Formula One runner-up, but Sir Jackie Stewart, three times world champion, considers Sterling Moss to be peerless. He walked like a racing driver should walk. He talked like a racing driver... He looked like a racing driver, and he set a standard that I think has been unmatched since he retired. So Sterling Moss influenced generations. He enjoyed what so many of his contemporaries didn't, the decades to reflect with the respect of his sport. Joe Wilson on the life of Sterling Moss, who has died aged 90. And finally, the Italian opera singer Andrea Bocelli has streamed a live concert in a bid to send love, healing and hope to Italy amid the COVID-19 crisis. 3.4 million people worldwide watched the singer's Easter Sunday concert live from the empty Duomo in Milan. Our reporter, Ellie Costello, has the story. From the heart of Milan one of the worst affected cities of the coronavirus outbreak. Music to bring the world together. Andrea Bocelli stood in a suit and bow tie in the centre of the empty Duomo. He was invited by the mayor of Milan and the archpriest of the cathedral to give the concert, called Music for Hope. Amazing grace. Before the concert, Mr. Bocelli said, Thanks to music bringing together millions of clasped hands, we will hug this wounded earth's pulsing heart. That 
report was by Ellie Costello and the concert from Andrea Bocelli was streamed by Decca Records. And that's it from us for now, but there will be an updated version of the Global News podcast later. If you would like to comment on this podcast or you just want to say hello from isolation or share pictures of where you listen or your pets or anything, you know where we are. You can send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. I'm Jackie Leonard and until next time, goodbye. Bye.